Welcome to the official Ronnie Landis Podcast Show, where you learn to upgrade the human experience through natural nutrition, lifestyle design, and consciousness engineering. This is no ordinary health or personal growth podcast, and Ronnie Landis is definitely no ordinary host. Ronnie Landis is an integrative nutritionist, transformation coach, and human behavioral specialist. He brings on some of the world's leading thought leaders to deliver to you the most cutting-edge information and unique perspectives so you can create the life of your dreams. Get ready to receive your upgrade in all you believed was possible, starting now. The information provided in this podcast is not a replacement to proper guidance by a qualified professional. This information is not designed to treat or diagnose any health conditions and is intended for entertainment and personal educational purposes. Make sure to consult with the proper professionals as it pertains to your health, lifestyle adjustments, supplement use, or anything else in regards to your well-being. The use, no use, or misuse of any of this information is your responsibility, and we encourage you to do your own research before implementing any of the information provided in this podcast. Hello, welcome. We're here on the Ronnie Landis Podcast Show. Ronnie Landis is a holistic health nutritionist, peak life performance specialist, and creator of the Holistic Health Mastery Certification. You can find him at ronnie-landis.com and holistichealthmastery.com. Today is a special <coughs> podcast. We're going to be doing question and answers from people who have submitted online. Normally on this podcast, we cover different types of topics that will help you become your greatest self. And I am Christina Rendon, and I'll be co-hosting today's podcast. I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and energy healer, and I'm so excited to be here, Ronnie. I'm excited to be here, too, and thank you for hosting this incredible episode where we're going to do some you know, questions and answers for all the health enthusiasts, all the lifestyle enthusiasts and people out there that really want to know what's what when it comes to their health, when it comes to their nutrition, when it comes to lifestyle design, and anything else that's on people's minds and they want to get uh, our insight on it. So I'm excited to be here with you and I'm ready to jump in. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah, we have some great questions from many different types of people and the first question for today comes from Hoy, and he's wondering if all of our food supplies consist entirely of domesticated, selectively bred varieties that didn't exist even 100 years ago. Their wild counterparts are either extremely low yield, inedible, or poisonous, and the cultivated herbs that we take and their wild counterparts require modern extraction methods. Then what is the real original natural diet of humankind? That's a packed question. Love to hear your answer. Yeah, that's a multi-layered, multi-tiered question. And I'm pretty sure I know exactly what Hoy is driving at. <clears throat> but in order to properly answer that question, I think there's a few different directions that we have to 
constellate together and kind of bring it into a dynamic harmony to get to the core answer, which ultimately is posing this question, which is, what is the natural diet of Homo sapiens in the 21st century? And this is a a question that I've been trying to find the answer to over the last decade of being a raw food enthusiast, being a, a, a vegan and vegetarian, and also you know, kind of getting away from the isms and the dietary definitions that oftentimes we will subject ourselves to in order to try to figure out really what is the best way to fuel our bodies moving forward into the future. And one of the ways that we can do that is we can look at the anthropomorphic records, the ethnobotanical records of, of human diets. Ethnobotany is the cultural study of how human beings culturally and tribally have used botanicals, like plants basically, to organize their dietary strategy. One thing I want to point out about this is that we never ever want to get locked into a straitjacket of dietary uh, idealism or dietary dogma or fanaticism when it comes to trying to figure out this question because One thing that we always have to remember when we're looking back at history is that we are living in a time of such opulent abundance where we have literally every single option available to us at a snap of a finger, at the click of a mouse. Our ancestors never had a shopping market, let alone Amazon.com, to order any kind of supplement or superfood or herb or anything else. They never had YouTube University where they could scour the internet for unlimited amounts of information in which to organize their dietary strategy. So we have to keep the context present. We have to keep all perspectives relative to the type of circumstances that we live in right now approaching the 21st century And also look to the past to see patterns so we can start to we can start to flush out what a natural diet would look like when we live in a synthetic and artificial, um, somewhat superficial world where we're being marketed all kinds of agendas and dietary theories from left and right. One thing I want to say is that when we're looking back at history, we have to understand that most communities, most tribal communities and ancestral lifestyles were predicated based entirely on what they had available to them at any given time. This is why when you look at different ecosystems, you look at different tribes and communities around the world, they all have a slightly different variant of food options that they operated um, based on, that they were able to create their lifestyles out of. So you have to keep that in context is that we can't just simply take on a tagline of uh, just raw foodism because it sounds good or because it seems like the obvious approach. Now, when I first got into raw foodism, I definitely was under the the a level of obviousness, I guess, where I wanted to know, okay, what was the human diet before we started incorporating technological innovations like cooking apparatuses before we started applying like stoves, ovens, microwaves, toasters, and, um, <clears throat> and before we could even start cooking our food. What did human beings eat and procure at the time? 
And the simple answer is that they basically ate a 100% wild food diet. Now, the question wrapped up in the question here is that if we no longer have wild foods or even heirloom foods really available to us in abundance, then what does a quote-unquote natural diet look like? Excuse me, a little bug in my throat. What does a natural diet look like? And this is going to be up to each person's approximation because the truth is, yeah, we all have to deal with a certain amount of environmental toxicology, environmental toxicity, pollution, radioactive pollution, heavy metal pollution, xenoestrogenic pressure that is weighing on us at all times. So one of the perspectives that I have to this question is that it's it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit of a tightrope, I think, for me to just automatically give like um, a black or white answer because I don't believe the answer to this question is going to be one or the other. I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle where somebody realizes that we can only approximate or we can only uh, derive a certain amount of clarity and insight by looking so far into the past of our ancestors. And we actually have to look at what's available to us right here and now. And how do we move forward in a world that is overbearing with toxicology, with toxicological pressure? The real answer to this in my personal, I guess, perspective is that we want to really organize our diet around whole foods. Most of those foods being living foods from my perspective that may be slightly different for some other people from my perspective it's going to be a living foods diet because when you get into or a high living foods diet i should say when you get into raw living plant food one thing happens is you start to remove all the food allergens that are typically brought on by the overbreeding or the overhybridization and domestication of our common food options. The most common food allergies are wheat, which is gluten or gliadin, soy products, refined artificial sugar, refined salt, which is in every single processed um, preserved food option that you can find on the the shelves, Um, corn, uh, you know, domesticated, genetically engineered or genetically modified corn, and then dairy products, which are borne out with so many issues, and then also factory-farmed meat products. When we get onto a living foods diet, we start to increase detoxification and cleansing, and then we create a reset to our physiology, to our digestion, to our enzymology, meaning the production and synthesis of our body's endogenous enzymes, which are one of the main factors of healing and regeneration, and our nervous system and neurological health. Once we're able to clean the slate of all the artificial food preservatives and byproducts and food-like substances that I'm kind of laying out right here, the processed foods, then we come to a place of intuitive navigation. And ultimately, in order to answer the quandaries of the diet riddle, we have to start activating our intuitive intelligence, because that's what our ancestors had to do ultimately, is they had to, it was wild food intuition that guided them. They did not have Wikipedia, 
they did not have uh, like Amazon and, and YouTube and these things and books really. I mean, you know, on diet definitely more of like philosophy and and things of that nature. But they didn't really have too much to identify or to organize their nutrition strategy based on literature. They had to intuit based on their surroundings and what was made available to them. So it was a type of wild food intuition that guided our ancestors into the Neolithic age, into the first introduction, uh, the advent of agriculture, where we started to create civilization or city building human beings is another way of putting that. Daniel Vitalis likes to point that out a lot of times. I really appreciate that perspective because we lose sight of the fact that we are actually the byproducts of a domesticated society. One of the things I think is important to understand with a question like this is that we have to realize that our current phenotypical expression, that's our physical genetic expression of the human being as it stands right now, is based largely on a domesticated expression. We have been domesticated into a city-like environment, which is basically like an artificial human zoo. It's an artificial habitat that's been set up for us, and we've had shopping markets set up for us in order for us to go and procure our food, just like our ancestors would have procured their food with much more effort, and they would have consumed much higher quality foods in less in much lesser concentrations. Therefore, Fasting would have been a big part of the ancestral lifestyle. And this is what we learn through practices like intermittent fasting, water fasting, juice fasting, and things of this nature, <clears throat> is that we start to we start to clean away the chemical memories of a domesticated food supply, and from that place we activate our intuitive navigation system. Part of what I'm sharing in this answer is a, is, a, is a return to consciousness. It's a return to our own intuitive, our own wild food intuition. There are still plenty of wild foods that are made available to us. It just depends on our ecological or our ecosystem that we're currently incubating in. For example, if we are in... Northern California, for example, you may think, oh, well, there's really no wild food left. There's like heirloom tomatoes, right? That's closer to the wild progenitors of what we call a tomato, which is a domesticated form of a much smaller berry. Botanically, tomatoes are actually berries and tomatoes are fruits because they're in that botanical that botanical class, and they were much smaller. Same thing with apples. The European progenitor of what we call an apple, like a green apple, a granny apple, or a red apple, or whatever you may, you may be familiar with, was much smaller, and it yielded more minerals before the acceleration of hybridization of what we now know as an apple. That would be closer to its wild form. Now, without going into too much detail about hybridization, the domesticated food supply and all that, I think everybody can kind of draw out and derive a little bit of what I'm pointing to here. In my book, The Holistic Health Mastery, I have an entire section on hybrid foods that if this is interesting to you, you could go much deeper into. Now, 
again, there's a few different, there's like a constellation of data points in my mind right now that I almost want to hopscotch between, but it could leave the viewer or the audience listening to this a little bit perplexed and a little bit confused. So I want to be very clear in what I'm saying here is that we look to the past to see patterns and probabilities of what our ancestors from all over the world, their habit patterns were in organizing their diet and lifestyle. And then we try to line that up as best as we can with our current lifestyle. Now, I want to finish the thought that it just came to me about, for example, if you're living in Northern California, you may think that, hey, there's no wild food left. But if you start going on hikes, if you start taking foraging tours, like I'm thinking in Marin County uh, towards Mount Tamalpais, you have a number of really interesting options. There are wild foods all around you. If you go for a hike towards Mount Tamalpais, for example, I'm thinking of, you can find wild berries, wild blackberries, wild raspberries grown. Specifically, blackberries are way more prevalent. And you'll notice the difference than the cultivars that you find, let's say, in the shopping market or even in your farmer's market. That is a way of getting a direct connection with the intelligence of nature, a.k.a. the wild food intuition being reactivated within you. This is something you start to get more interested in when you do get into raw food. And then you start exploring the idea of what a superfood really is. For example, maca. Now, it is true. There's different forms of maca and there's different cultivars because of the popularity of maca in the business around it. I recommend when you're dealing, just making maca a quick example, you know, you can get regular powdered maca, which is going to be... The, it's going to yield the least quality nutrition. But then you start to go into gelatinized maca, which is still processed. They remove the starches. It makes it much easier to digest and assimilate and absorb. But then you start getting into red maca. You start getting into black maca, which is much closer to its wild progenitor than, let's say, just your powdered commonplace maca powder that you find. Um, another example I want to point out is that when you go to a place like Hawaii in the Polynesian Triangle, you go to like Kauai or you go to the big island of Hawaii, for example, you can find wild foods almost everywhere. I'm thinking of wild coconuts. They grow wildly without the intervention of human hands. Humans actually don't need to interrupt the growing patterns of coconuts because they grow wildly everywhere you go in the whole, the Hawaiian triangle same thing with things like star fruit same thing with like papayas and mangoes although in avocados all those many of those are cultivated for sure you can find their wild form if you go into foraging or jackfruit for example i've gone on hikes to the Hanakape falls which is this majestic waterfall about four or five mile hike up into the hills of uh, Nepali coast in Kauai. And I was astonished to find jackfruit trees just bleeding out wild jackfruits. Like, I mean, nobody could even see it if you didn't have the eyes to see it. But I had the eyes to see it and I noticed like 20 jackfruits laying around um, with nobody in sight. 
that's an example of wild food intuition where I wasn't looking for it, but based on my own intuitive navigation and my own experience with this kind of thing, I was able to perceive and become aware of wild food on in my you know little my little ecosystem that I was traversing through. So you know again, I'm just dropping a number of perspectives to kind of draw from in your own organization of your own natural nutritional diet. Another thing is Brazil nuts. Brazil nuts are a wild food that hasn't been a, that really doesn't. Um, need domestication. They grow wildly. Obviously, they are all cultivated, but they're still in their wild form. That's one of the reasons I kind of suspect that you don't need to soak and germinate Brazil nuts because they are a wild food. When you start hybridizing these nuts and seeds, it creates these, these other byproducts that we might call enzyme inhibitors I'm not saying that those enzyme inhibitors wouldn't be present in wild nuts because there is a kind of a, a strong processing that you have to go through in order to crack through the shell of, let's say, a walnut or to crack through the shell of a cashew fruit, which has the, the seed of the fruit, which we call a cashew. You have to go through a processing in order to get into it, which is another thing that I think Hoy is bringing up is that one of the idealistic perspectives that I kind of drew on early in my raw food journey was that I could just go to a tropical location and I could just pick fruit like the Garden of Eden, right? I was under that kind of spell. It made sense to me. I was like, wow, yeah, the Adam and Eve story now officially makes sense to me. I can make sense of this whole thing. And it's all because of raw living food, right? And I like that perspective. It's romantic. And yet my experience going into the wild or, you know, I guess semi-wild environments, if you will, proved to be otherwise. There's still a bit of a, a, there's work that you have to do in order to procure the food. Another example of that is if you want to procure honey, honey is largely still a wild food, even though it, or let's say it's more, it's closer, it can be still closer to its wild form, um, without much intervention other than the humans actually going in and extracting out the honey, um, you still have to work for it. A bear trying to procure a massive amount of honey still has to go into the hive and has to go through subtle dangers of being stung up a whole bunch of times in order to procure that food. And honey is one of the largest calorie sources in a wild environment, which is why it was so prized. And it was your primary source of sugar, because another thing about wild food and wild fruit is that wild fruit is much lower in its sugar yield, much higher in its mineral concentration, which is why we always want to organize our diet with as much wild or heirloom-based foods and specifically fruits as possible. This conversation could go indefinitely. Um, but ultimately, I think the conclusion of this train of thought is simply for me anyways, is that we need to be able to have enough retrospective humility. What I mean by that is we have to be able to get out of our own bubble and be able to look to the past for guidance and then also be realistic about the world we live in right now. And how are we going to move forward with the level of pollution that we have? And that's why we have to have 
detoxification strategies built into our lifestyle so we can we can start to identify what kind of foods would would appear to be quote unquote natural i think the last thing that i want to say about this is the word natural needs to be questioned the world the word natural is up for scrutiny based simply because almost nobody in the health world understands what it is to be a natural human being and that's not a knock i'm still very much in that same bubble although i have a little different perspective than many people that are that have lived and operated within the confines of a city for most of their life i have a, a multi perspective um awareness of this word natural and a lot of my illusions around the word natural have been broken apart because i realized that as long as we are operating from a domesticated perspective and our our means of nutritional sustainability are coming entirely from domesticated plants and animals from the supermarket we are not going to be able or or capable of activating our wild intuitive nature which goes beyond just food it goes into movement patterns it goes into ways of thinking of indo- of breaking the conditioning and indoctrination of a domesticated civilization. So therefore, ultimately this question is not just about food, but it's the way that we perceive food. It's the way that we perceive our diet and are we locked into a rigid paradigm of one way fits all or are we open to interpretation and open to humility where we realize that each human being is biochemically enzymatically histologically um microbiomically i don't know if that's a word but essentially i'm talking about your gut bacteria and neurologically emotionally psychologically and all of that we're all unique in that way therefore it's an intuit it's an intuitive capacity that must be activated within each person and the way that you start that journey is simply eating more original and authentic food that is as far away from technological processing as possible and from that place you activate a wild intuitive nature and you start to rise out of the ashes of human domestication Wow, Ronnie, I love so many points that you touched upon, um, including being intuitive with what we're eating and also paying attention to the sources and the types of foods that we're eating in the now and what we can do in the present moment. I, I'm glad that you brought up Brazil nuts because I had heard of that too, that Brazil nuts are much more heirloom compared to different types of nuts and seeds out there. Yeah, and let me add on to that really quickly. Um this question begs more in-depth uh investigation. One of the things you're talking about Brazil nuts, another thing is the the typically cultivated almonds. Almonds are much higher in sugar than they used to be back in the early 1900s and definitely further back than that. Almonds used to be very rich in a nutrient called amygdalin or laetrile. otherwise known as vitamin B17. You may have heard of vitamin B17 in cancer research and there's a there's um a specific doctor, I can't remember his name. I've I've mentioned him in in my writings and stuff. I, his name is eluding me at the moment, but he's a huge um 
promoter of vitamin B17 as the primary catalyst for healing cancer. I don't necessarily believe that as the individual nutrient, but the point is very interesting is that vitamins now are virtually renounced of their laetrile or magdalen content, much higher in sugar. Um, um, if you can get raw, sprouted, activated almonds, they're still great great foods, great source of arginine, great source of nutrition, um, but but they don't have that wild component. And so a lot of the issues that we find as a domesticated, in living in a domesticated food and ecological um, environment, a habitat that's been set up for us based on a superficial or synthetic habitat leaves us susceptible to weak links in our genetic code, in our cell divisions, which lead to uh, commonly thought to be genetic dispositions like cancer, which is totally ridiculous. That's a lifestyle and diet-induced and also emotional, psychologically-induced condition, um, which we know based on the reversal of it via diet, nutrition, and emotional, mental coherence. But... Uh, you know, there's another wild food, or, uh, or I would say, let's just say heirloom food, just for the record, which is apricot kernels, which are still a rich source of amygdalin B17. I believe certain nutrients are actually wild nutrients, if you will. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna explain that any further. I'll just leave it up to your own common sense and your own investigation. But when you breed these foods over and over and over and hybridize them to no end, they start to release wild uh, characteristics. In this case, a component called B17, which has been heavily correlated in the reversal of what I'm calling a domesticated condition, aka cancers of all kinds. That is a condition like diabetes, like many of the digestive and neurological infection-based conditions. I believe those are all the onsets of a heavily domesticated and hybridized um, artificial uh, adapted society. One more point about this before I get off this soapbox is that it's not just food that we're talking about. It's your ecological environment that we have to attune back into, which is the four elements of nature, which is our biosphere. It's our hydrosphere, meaning water, spring water, the only form of wild water left to us that's really ever been here is spring water. When you go straight to the source, the womb of the earth, that is the quickest way to activate your wild intuitive capabilities, in my experience for sure, is going straight to the source where water births itself for the very first time in our upper atmosphere, and it really donates to you like all the memory signatures, all the energetic signatures of the environment that it's been incubating in for hundreds to possibly thousands of years before it's taken its first breath, which you can receive directly from the womb of the earth, a.k.a. a spring. Also, getting into bodies of water called an ocean is a great way to reintroduce yourself to the wild uh, blanket of nature, getting grounded on the earth, breathing fresh air, 
in a natural environment, of course, like a beach, for example, or a forest, you know, those kind of things. And then also the sun, getting connected back with the sun. What I'm talking about with the biospherical nutrition, the elemental nutrition, is the hydrosphere, which is water, the geosphere, which is earth, the atmosphere, which is air, and the heliosphere, which is sun. When we become physically connected with these four elemental components of the natural environment, we automatically activate more empowered hormone balance. We activate neurological capacity. We activate uh, nervous system protection. We activate cardiovascular circulation. We activate bone density. We reduce inflammation and we activate genetic triggers that turn on anti-aging capabilities, all of which, by the way, and immunological empowerment and momentum, all of these things I just said get deactivated when we are disconnected from the wild elements of the earth. So I have to add that in as well. Thank you. That's also some other amazing content. Uh, Definitely being connected to our environment and connected to the sun and the earth is so vital. And I wanted to add some other points around this wild food and or heirloom food. It's, it's pretty wonderful, as you were mentioning, um, like going hiking in Northern California. Um, when we just start becoming more uh, intuitive um, to wild food sources... I have come across um, strawberry trees and sea buckthorn and rose hips just in random locations, um, which I wouldn't have been attuned to if I wasn't open to seeing them or, or blackberries, um, just things like that. And it's, it's really beautiful to just connect with nature like that. And um, another food source that I know makes quite a difference is blueberries. Like there's wild blueberries and then there's organic blueberries, but even the organic wild blueberries, I've heard that those are even better at detoxing from heavy metals. Yeah, and when you look at look at the size, shape, and texture of the wild foods and progenitors compared to their, their heirloom and even more further cultivated and hybridized counterparts, an organic berry is much bigger than a wild berry, a wild blueberry in this case, right? And it yeah. doesn't taste as sugary. Have you noticed that? It's not as sugary, um, but in my experience, it's far more fulfilling and it's far more satiating on all levels. And that's why I always defer to wild blueberries any chance I possibly can. And by the way, you can purchase wild blueberries in pretty much any Whole Foods um, or any you know good health food store in the frozen section if you can't immediately either forage it, which is not going to be the case for everyone, or get it from you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a good source, let's say. Yeah, beautiful. So I think for most people around this question is do the best you can, find organic, find heirloom, find things that have seeds in them. And um, for people who want to get really in depth, maybe plant your own seeds. What do you think about that? Like what, I, I think, what are I think, some of your top tips around well, this? I, I just think that... Um, all of us want to come to a point in our life as we move forward where we can start to grow our own gardens, where we can start to create our own food supply. We can start to extricate ourselves from 
um, in, not entirely, but piece by piece from the the money system, as it were, where we're not always spending money for every little thing. We can create money by creating our own food. I'm not quite in that place yet, so I don't want to sound like I'm an authority or I'm preaching about it, but that is a directive. I know that's inevitable in my life and the work that I do, and I really think that's going to be a source of inspiration for all of us moving forward because that's what true wealth and abundance is all about, being able to create your own resources based on your own um, your own efforts, essentially, where we don't always have to exchange money as a source of exchange for every little thing um, to to sustain us. It's a minimalistic, and that's what I also think is a naturalistic perspective, is that na- nature has to do with efficiency. Nature has to do with resource conservation, and it's very unnatural to eat 5,000 calories of fruit and bananas, 30 bananas a day and all this other stuff that goes on, that's an unnatural behavior based on gluttony and based on, um, you know, inefficiency, essentially. That's another kind of important little nuance there I want to point out in terms of like, what is a natural diet and lifestyle looks like. It looks like efficiency and optimizing the physiology and the sustainability of the human frame and the human biosuit we call a body where we can start to generate our own energy based on factors not entirely just food because we generate energy from other things than food like the biosphere that I just mentioned like the earth, the water, getting in water and drinking water um, you know, by that, by breathing in fresh air, electrically charged ionic air, and also like things like sun gazing and getting sun photons touching your bare skin. It energizes you in a way that food does not. So I want to point that out too. Wonderful. So moving on to the next question, um, we have a question from Jahan. And this man in particular, um, he's gone through some radical transformations with his health. Um, He was over 300 pounds and lost 100 pounds. And then he did this by switching to a plant-based lifestyle and eating a lot of raw foods. So really just completely shifting his life and getting into yoga. Um, But then he had a heart attack. And after the heart attack, he lost another 50 pounds by doing juices and smoothies and basically non-solid foods. And he is right now in the position where he's wanting to know how he can heal his heart valves and his arteries to not have to do a bypass surgery. So essentially how to heal his heart and He feels like he's been doing so much. He's been researching different doctors and specialists on plant-based lifestyle. And and so if you could give some pointers around that or insight around the heart and heart valve health. Okay, great. This is a fantastic question. And I want to just say with a question like this, I want to tread lightly only because, of course, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a cardiologist. And... I don't play one on TV or the internet, you know. I want to just give 
give really solid, credible advice based on my experience, based on my observation, and based on what's uh, scientifically sound and appears to be true in this case. And one of the things with heart disease of all kinds is that heart disease is the number one reason for death in America, actually in the world. Heart disease ranks number one. Cancers of all kinds combined ranks as number two. So just to have that awareness, the thing that vegans die of the most is heart disease. The things that meat eaters die of the most is heart disease across the board. So with something like this, let's see, one of the things that comes up for me is there's two great books that I came across a while back from a doctor by the name of Matthias Raff. One of them is called Eradicating Heart Disease. The other is called Why Animals Don't Get Heart Attacks, But People Do. Very interesting perspective he points out in that book in particular is that all carnivores in nature intrinsically produce their own endogenous vitamin C because they are not herbivores and they don't typically eat plants other than the byproducts of metabolism from the animals that they eat because carnivores typically eat herbivores, right? And in vitamin C, you cannot find vitamin C in any animal tissue or animal food. It's entirely derived from plants. So nature is interesting how it it supplies the physiology um, of different mammalian, different organisms in general with exactly what they need based on their genetic proclivity or their genetic and physiological design. So what he details in the book is that Animals in the wild don't get heart disease. Heart disease is a domesticated condition, as I was pointing out a little bit earlier in this call. It's a condition based entirely on improper diet, um, entirely on lifestyle, and very strongly on distress, meaning chronic levels of stress that become carcinogenic and actually create tension and constriction on the arterial pathways in the vascular system and really tighten up the heart as an organ entirely in the aortic aortic valve, which suppresses blood flow to the brain. We might call that a stroke. There's other other aspects involved in that a little more concretely physiologically, but that's an important one too, is the emotional and psychological state of what's going on in that person's life that plays a big role. Blood pressure has a huge connection there. When we're very tight, tightly wound up, we start to tightly bind up our vascular uh, passages, let's just say, and we, we inhibit blood flow. So moving on with this question, the vitamin C aspect is critical. Now, humans don't actually produce their own vitamin C, which leads me to believe that humans, although I don't believe we are intrinsically herbivores, I think we're omnivores, ultimately, meaning that throughout human history, human beings have tried to eat basically everything. This goes back to Hoy's question about what the natural diet is. It's basically all over the board because humans have tried to be insectivores, we've tried to be herbivores, we've tried to be fruitarians, fruitivores, we've tried to be um, carnivores living entirely off animal flesh and blood and meat and, and that kind of thing. 
vegetarians, raw foodists, everything across the board. So it, it, intrinsically, we're omnivores in that way. We don't produce our own vitamin C, which is kind of what Dr. Matthias Rath is pointing out in that book in particular, why animals don't get heart attacks, but people do. We know vitamin C is extremely important to cardiovascular health. It's extremely important to diffusing blood platelet formations that create coagulations in the blood, meaning red blood cells clumping up together and creating uh, uh, a fusion, meaning basically increasing the viscosity of our blood. And if you still don't know what I mean, I basically mean creating sluggishness in our blood, creating thickening in our blood where we lose oxygen and nutrient transportation throughout the cardiovascular system. This is another kind of thing behind blood pressure. And so without going into a really long in-depth kind of investigation of cardiovascular disease, let me lay out some strategies that are very well known. There's the vitamin C perspective, which is basically going straight to the most powerful vitamin C containing botanicals, which is camu camu berry, amla berry, and acerola cherry, as well as rose hips are all extremely high in vitamin C. And then beyond that, even getting into lipospheric vitamin C supplements, which come in a gel-like packet, which is the liposome, that vitamin C, and that, that form is transported into for much you know, more assimilated delivery that, that kind of bypasses the, the typical uh, digestive process, let's say. And then also there is um, there's the green juicing perspective, which is to increase blood flow, which according to what you've shared with me about this individual, he's already done that and had tremendous results with it. So that part is really important. I would say 32 to 64 ounces of green vegetable juice. An example could be a celery and cucumber-based juice with things like ginger, things like turmeric. Uh, what else is really great? Things like cilantro or parsley. Uh, lemon, by the way, two to three lemons juiced up in that juice is really, really powerful. And lemons are and another great source of vitamin C as well. And the citric acid is great for dissolving calcium beds that get laid out in our cardiovascular system and the physical organ of our heart, um, in our kidneys, creating kidney stones, so many other aspects. Calcification appears to be the number one corollary behind all major cases of heart disease. One thing I want to say about that, every single heart disease that's ever been studied has one definitive factor, which is excess calcium and a, deficient of, a deficiency of magnesium. Low magnesium, high calcium. Therefore, calcium supplements should never, ever be taken by really anybody at all, but especially anyone that has a cardiovascular issue. Because calcification is basically the bedrock for how cardiovascular disease insulates or forms itself in the capillary tunnels. On the lining of the capillary walls is always um, like a, an insulator 
or a layer of hard calcium that gets brought on by what's called nanobacteria. That's its own subject. I won't go too deep into that. It's a type of bacteria that really that uses excess calcium in the body to create like a fortress to protect itself from the immune system. This is the same thing with what's called biofilm infections. So those are things that somebody can really look into. But I'm going to digress from that. Magnesium is one of the most powerful things for dissolving excess calcium in the cardiovascular system. Beyond that, Dr. Matthias Rath in his books talks about <coughs> specific amino acids that are very useful in cardiovascular disease such as proline, glycine, lysine, and cysteine. Cysteine and methionine in particular are sulfur-bearing amino acids which are very important for repairing the framework of the capillary bed or the capillary passages that often gets damaged and creates like a, a, um, a compression or a collapse. When those walls of the capillaries get broken down, they collapse on top of each other and that creates blood flow interruptions as well. So amino acids such as methionine and cysteine are very important. Ultimately, you can do free-form amino acids to make sure that you're getting all your amino acids in check. You might not be able to get that entirely from protein-rich food. So you want to do free-form amino acids, complete amino acids in this case. And then another thing is coenzyme Q10 which is very important for cardiovascular disease. Another thing is B vitamins, full-spectrum B vitamins, and vitamin B12 is extremely important for heart conditions. The number one biomarker for the acceleration of aging is, a, is like a renegade amino acid called homocysteine, and that has to do with your ability to methylate that has to do with your liver health, and that also has to do with cardiovascular health and B12 deficiencies. So getting, getting B12 supplementation in the form of methylcobalamin, with, also with vitamin B6 and bi, vitamin B9, not folic acid, but folate, um, as cofactors for vitamin B12 are extremely important. One last thing about this is systemic enzymes. The one thing I have seen in my experience probably be more effective than anything else in this situation is high, high dosages of what's called proteolytic enzymes or metabolic enzymes, which basically break down scar tissue, fibrin formations, that get laid out in our cardiovascular system that cause inflammation. Cardiovascular disease, basically like any other form of, of disease, is based on inflammation. And fibrin in scar tissue essentially creates an agitation in the cardiovascular system and instigates inflammatory spreading or a cascade of inflammation. And also protein deposits. This could go on and on. So ultimately what I'm saying is that systemic enzymes are extremely important. 
I would study the work of Dr. Nick Gonzalez, who has now passed away, um, but his work was very clear on using systemic enzymes for reversing different forms of cancer. Um, this also, I've seen, for example, I want to point out a story that I've actually been a part of with one of my clients a number of years ago in Hawaii. Um, when I was giving lectures weekly in Hawaii, there was a spiritual teacher, um, a Hawaiian spiritual teacher, that always came to every single one of my lectures. And I came to find out that she was dealing with a cardiovascular issue where the aortic valve of her heart, your aorta is like the largest kind of um, connector of your, your heart organ, and it has three separate valves that essentially transport blood and oxygen to your brain. And she had calcification lining her aortic valve. And we did a number of things for her. We had to get her off all the meat products, all the fried food, all the processed food of the Hawaiian culture, the spam and all that kind of stuff. Get her onto higher quality water, get her onto green vegetable juicing, and then get her onto high dosages of systemic enzymes to break down the protein deposits and break down the calcification in her in her coronary arteries and within a, you know I'd say a month or two she came back to me saying that she was almost cleared of the calcification that she previously was struggling with and I basically put her on a protocol of doing about I want to say either 15 or 25 systemic enzymes twice a day 15 cap 15 to 25 capsules of systemic enzymes twice a day now this can be up you can there's no upper limit to enzymes by the way there's no upper dosage that's going to become problematic you could theoretically do as many enzymes as you want and you're only going to have be, you know benefits going forward um, dr nick gonzalez for example when he has somebody with stage three or stage four cancer He'll put them on a protocol of in the upwards of 100 to 300, or did have before he passed away, 100 to 300 proteolytic enzymes every single day with one of the best track records for cancer reversal in the world. So I just want to point that out too. And ultimately, somebody's going to have to put these pieces together and see where they fit. But that's kind of the download that I have in regards to that question. It's wonderful, great information. Um, there's a lot of books to check out, a lot of things to just lifestyle-wise in there. Um, in addition to learning how to heal the heart and the artery valves, I am wanting to know, along with this question, this person wants to know how to reduce cholesterol. Because even when they were on their smoothie cleanse, their cholesterol continued to raise, but they were eating a significant amount of fats from well, nuts and Yeah, so I would ask that like person, that. there's an important distinction, was it LDL cholesterol or HDL cholesterol? Because this is a very important distinction. LDL cholesterol is typically categorized as the bad form of cholesterol. HDL is typically categorized as the good form. Now, you want this to be in balance for sure, but ultimately, having high cholesterol... Um, uh, numbers 
is not very well correlated with heart disease at all. In fact, to make that point, studies, if you combine all the major heart disease studies in relationship to cholesterol, the distillation is this. 50% of people that have heart disease have normal or lower level cholesterol um, and 50% have higher cholesterol. Of everyone that actually has heart disease, of people that have been in all these studies anyways, that's the distillation. So ultimately what that proves is that cholesterol as it is, is not a good biomarker for the, the prediction or of the reason for somebody having any form of heart disease. Now, what I'll say about that is that there is cholesterol laid out in the arteries of people that have heart disease, but it's, it's, it's typically oxidized, cooked, rancid cholesterol coming from processed animal foods in an overabundance of animal uh, products, specifically meat products that are difficult to metabolize when they are consumed in excess. That is a super important point to point out there. Another thing about cholesterol is that in the early 1900s, um, researchers could not explain why there was this humongous epidemic of seemingly out of nowhere rates of heart disease. They couldn't figure out why. Now, this is, this is a little past the advent of the industrial area and processed foods being, pour, being poured into the Western civilization. And they created what's called the lipid hypothesis, which is a hypothesis of why heart disease was the way it was. It's not a conclusion based on science. It's, it's a hypothesis. It was essentially a theory that now we know has been overturned based on scientific validation that cholesterol is not the forebearer of heart disease. What we come to find out is that it's based on refined food. It's based on sugar in a lot of cases. Not necessarily sugar coming from fruit, but refined sugar that overburdens the cardiovascular system and creates what's called triglycerides that agitate the walls of the arteries. And the body will actually create its own storages of cholesterol from the cells in order to buffer the agitation that's coming on from triglycerides that are formed from excess refined sugar. So I have to point that out. And this, this could probably be from excess um, hybridized fruit sugar as well, depending on the person's sugar metabolism. That's really, really important perspective to just lay out is that um, there's a number of factors here, but cholesterol is not the singulary focus um, as we've been kind of taught to believe. Okay. Wow. One more so, thing. One more thing that has to be spoken about this is that one of the the really amazing pieces of research that's been laid out is that by getting grounded every single day, and we're saying like 45 to 90 minutes of direct bare skin connection to the earth and to the negatively ionic charge of the earth that's bearing out negative ions, which are the most powerful anti-inflammatory antioxidants that the, the earth produces, 
it diffuses and disassociates the red blood cells from clumping up together. So what I'm saying is that it decreases the thick viscosity of our blood chemistry and creates slippery, slippery blood. That's a really, really important thing too. I could actually go on about this subject. There's so many different things that are coming to mind, but I think maybe it's really important to just leave it as it is because we've already kind of laid out a tremendous amount of information, but grounding is another thing that would be highly instrumental in anybody that wants to um, increase cardiovascular health and um, uh, extract themselves from a quote-unquote heart disease condition. Wonderful. Yeah, so increasing vitamin C. I like what you were saying about the green juice. Um, One thing that I wanted to add about that, get your insight on, is keeping the peel on the lemon because of the the extra vitamin C in the rind. Yep, that's right. And the white part. Absolutely. And so the next question um, has to do with superfood companies and heavy metals. So Tierra wants to know, what is your take on heavy metals being found in well-known superfood company products? It's a great question. And it's an important question to investigate. My personal take right now is that it's a little unclear because I have seen those articles, not just recently with the passing of Dr. James Sheridan, who was an incredible hero in the natural foods industry and the founder of Health Force, which I do believe is still a highly reputable superfood company and deserves to be respected and to given to be given their side of the story because I believe through people like Mike Adams and the sensationalism of natural news, um, it's created a one-sided perspective that I think is really imbalanced and not the most appropriate way of going about it. So it's created this kind of fear in people that superfood companies are subject to heavy metal toxicity. And it's not just quote-unquote superfood companies. It's all food in general because all food is typically coming from the soil, plant-based food or animal food that are ingesting plants that are growing out of the soil matrix So there is going to be certain levels of what we call heavy metals. They're in our environment. Arsenic, lead, cadmium, mercury, and many other um, metals, depending on, I guess, like the heaviness of the metal or depending on the concentration of that metal are going to be more problematic than not. What I want to say about this is two things. Yes, This is something to be concerned about and something to be questioned among the reputability of certain companies that should be doing testing. As far as I know, a number of these companies have come out with their own tests. Um, I'm aware of Sunfood and Ultimate Superfoods and Health Force, which all claim to have done tests and produced or to be and presented their findings or their story in certain articles that people can look up. I don't represent the quality of these companies in terms of heavy metals because I'm simply not the one doing the research. So I leave it up to them to be the spokesperson for their own company. Um, but it's a great question and it's valid. 
the thing that I think is more important than trying to point fingers is to understand that we are all being influenced by heavy metal exposure each and every day of our lives. Therefore, implementing foods that are detoxifying of heavy metals and chelating them is crucial. Foods like cell, uh, cell wall cracked chlorella is important. Spirulina and blue-green algae and marine phytoplankton is very important. Um, foods that contain humic and fulvic acid, like high-quality shilajit, is very important. Um, even fulvic acid supplements. Making sure that you get a full spectrum of organic minerals, highly mineralized foods, and even going to a very good mineral supplement is very important to protect the receptor sites of your, your body from taking in heavy metals in replacement for a mineral deficiency because minerals can chelate other heavy minerals out of the body and also radioactive isotopes, otherwise known as radioactive minerals like iodine-131, I'm thinking of when you have enough iodine in your physical tissues and in your thyroid, it blocks off the absorption of radioactive iodine and so on and so forth. So that's kind of a, that's a solution in of itself. And then, um, you know, having other designer detox products like clays, like um, zeolite clays, bentonite clay, things of that nature activated charcoal in the diet is extremely important in our day and age taking four to six capsules of activated coconut charcoal on an empty stomach every morning is very very important to be pre preventative because no matter what we're eating there's going to be a there's going to be that ratio of potential contamination in combination with high nutrition that we all seek to kind of abide by. And so we want to have these preventative measures already installed into our diet and our lifestyle so we essentially don't really have to burden ourselves with over-worrying about these other issues um, that Tierra is bringing up. That's my perspective on it. Wonderful. Around this, um, do you have any resources for people to look at or possibly any companies that you recommend that you've done a little research on? Um, I still, until completely proven guilty, I still think Health Force is a great company. It, there might be certain products that I may not recommend as much as others, but I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is actually a famous phrase that Dr. Sheridan coined. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go black or white, which is what most people do. I don't think that's a balanced perspective. So you have to do your own due diligence. I think that that's still a great company. There's an amazing company called Raw Revelations, which produces super high-quality superfood products that I definitely back up until until proven, proven otherwise. So at this point, uh, that's a great company. Um longevitywarehouse.com produces great superfood products. So if you are worried about that, then there's other resources that you can seek out. Wonderful. Okay, so the next question comes from Kimberly, and she's asking about dry eyes and what can be done for this issue. 
Okay, this is an issue that I'm not too familiar with. Um, I imagine that there's a number of um, things that I could easily intuit, but I don't want to say definitively that anything that I have to say about it is on point, just because I haven't taken the time or really come across such an issue of dry eyes. Although, um, if you study iridology, that might be a resource that you could find out more about this subject, which is the study of your health through observing the iris of your eyes and how your eyes are a mirror for your endocrinology and your physiology, what's going on in the human body. Beyond that, I would imagine it probably has something to do with the optical nerves connecting into the, the neurological system some way, somehow, and probably has to do with the, the fine veins and, and um, arteries connected to the eyes. Um, going back to the cardiovascular and circulatory system, it might have to do with blood flow in some way, somehow. So um, vasodilating foods and herbs could be very helpful for this. Um, I would actually say, you know what comes up for me actually, is certain minerals like silica and sulfur. I would tell you, if I were to guesstimate what I think this is up to, this could be a sulfur and or silica deficiency revealing itself. Silica in particular, I have to assume, is probably the primary catalyst for that glossiness and that vibrancy that we see in the eyes in particular. So herbs like horsetail, nettles, ostra, hemp leaf, uh, what else is really great source of sulfur? Cucumbers and the skin of cucumbers is really great. Also sulfur rich foods like garlic, radishes, red onions. Red onions are closer to their heirloom variety. White onions are hyper domesticated and um, just really neurologically imbalancing. I'm not a fan of white onions. I don't think really anybody should be consuming them. Red onions are really great though. And then supplements like MSM, methane, is really good. High, really great sources of bioavailable protein. Full spectrum protein is going to be helpful for the amino acids like the cysteine and methionine like in hemp seeds, for example, are a great plant-based source in that um, for building out the collagen and elastin proteins that set up the framework for our, our arteries and for our joints and our ligaments, which I have to say is probably connected to the development of our, our I don't know what it's called, but the, eye, the formation of our eye, the tissue, the eye tissue, I guess, for lack of a... Um, uh, possibly a more accurate description, but I think you get what I'm saying. Um, so silica and sulfur, in my immediate guesstimation, are probably the primary things. Omega-3 fatty acids, I'm intuiting somehow, probably have their part to play, just because their EPA is an essential fatty acid, omega-3 fatty acid, that is so, so important for eye health in general. So those are some strategies that somebody wants to look into. Wonderful. Yeah, those are some great answers. And I do know somebody that had a problem with dry eyes and they weren't eating very much salt 
and just adding in a little bit of Himalaya salt into their diet actually completely reversed that for them. So I know that one point that Ronnie really is big on is having proper hydration and having the proper minerals and the salt, it helps us to retain that hydration. So also just looking at that balance, I think that that might shift it as well. That is such a great point. If you have dryness, like dry, pale, leathery skin, it's essentially a dehydration condition. Every single condition of the human body, by the way, is rooted in a dehydration of the cells. And Dr. Batman Galich, which wrote the famous book, Your Body's Many Cries for Water, um, was such a huge proponent of this fact that dehydration and demineralization were the two primary causes of every single health condition under the sun. So that would make sense. Dry eyes would essentially be a dehydration of the eye tissue. So yeah, thank you for bringing that point up. Yeah, of course. Um, So the next question from the same person, Kimberly, is wanting to know about neuropathy and what to do about neuropathy. And there was another person who was also wondering about neuropathy who had uh, hepatitis C vaccine and Lyme in their younger years. So maybe you can talk on both, like neuropathy in general and also neuropathy in conjunction with having the other factors added in. Wow, what a, what a huge kind of, what a simple but big question. Um, well, I want to say everything that we've talked about up to this point has its part to play. Everything that I laid out about cardiovascular disease has its part to play in neuropic conditions, which is essentially in one way is a cardiovascular circulation problem. For example, diabetic neuropathy. By the way, diabetes is the number one reason for feet amputations. People think that it's like going to the war and getting shot or losing your leg or something. That That's not true at all. It's actually diabetes. And diabetes essentially is, especially diabetes type 2, is essentially an immune system compromise. It's omega-6 fatty acid rancid, um, like an, too much omega-6 rancid fatty acids, too little omega-3 fatty acids. Um, cardiovascular cloggage, which we've already laid out, a blockage of blood flow, circulation, and then it's demineralization. Hormone hormone imbalances have its part to play in this uh, as well, of course. But to just to simplify this for a moment, um, you know, that's kind of like to me, I would say that's like a diabetic characteristic in a way is is a neuropic issue where somebody loses mobility of one of their extremities and it's typically the lowest extremity that receives blood flow over the course of somebody's years which is our feet and our lower extremities like our our ankles and our our legs and and through the knees and that kind of thing and even to our fingers and our joints where it's not heavily vascularized and we don't get a lot of blood flow to our fingers and we have certain organisms like calcium forming organisms that creep up in that area because if you don't get a lot of blood flow 
to a certain region of the body, then you're not getting a lot of white blood cells or immune cells flowing through the blood to that area as well. And then your immune system can't get a handle on those infections and they basically set up shop. So biofilm infections, which is a conglomerate of bacteria that use something called quorum sensing or quorum signaling to communicate with each other. And they communicate with other viruses and bacteria and fungus and parasites of different natures. And they all conglomerate or, or, or combine to one another and create these biofilm material that they essentially use to insulate themselves from the immune system. And this is also where we start to lose mobility. One thing I want to say about diabetes, diabetes type 1, juvenile diabetes, or even diabetes type 2, I, I have to say it, it's probably all very similar, is that there is typically a viral infection present. Dr. Gabriel Cousins is one of the world leading experts on the subject. I recommend everybody check out the recent podcast I did with Dr. Gabriel Cousins a few podcast episodes ago. And in his book, Depression Free for Life, he talks about how depression is associated with a viral infection of the brain. Why do I bring that up? Because Dr. Gabriel Cousins' focus is on diabetes. And I mentioned earlier in this particular question that like neuropathy in my worldview is like a diabetic characteristic. So you have to factor this in. Now, without going into the absolute specifics of how to localize that, that specific region of the extremities that is being attacked, you have to factor in how to empower the immune system as a whole. Driving in high amounts of vitamin C is critical. Driving in immune-supporting herbs is critical. Medicinal mushrooms. I would, I would really recommend somebody in this case to do ultra-high dosages of a really good dual extraction of reishi mushroom. Reishi mushroom is the number one heart-protective herb that's ever been studied by science. Um, it's... I mean, for diabetes in general, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm again, I'm hopping from one thing to another, but it all, it all, it's all relative. It all comes together. Diabetes is, is an adaptogenic, I mean, I'm sorry, not diabetes. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. Reishi mushroom is a highly potent adaptogen, which means that it essentially modulates the stress response in the body, which definitely has its part to play in this type of condition. It helps to balance blood sugar regulation, many, many other factors. But the main thing I'd recommend it for is feeding the immune system, giving, educating the immune system once again, so the immune system gets a type of momentum built behind it, and it can start to come back online and address some of the root infections that are present in the body. Another great herb would be cordyceps for its antiviral characteristics and its immune-supporting um, beta-glucan polysaccharides, which are also present in reishi mushroom as well. Those are the two. Those are the two um, 
uh, herbs that come to mind immediately that somebody can jump on right away. Um, another thing is making sure that you have enough magnesium in the diet, making sure that you have enough silica, enough sulfur, which has already been heavily focused on in previous, previous questions. Um, I want to take a moment to take a breath here. I feel like something else is coming to me. Um, I think those would be really powerful things to focus on. I also would say omega-3 fatty acids in high dosages is really important. And for that, somebody's either going to have to look at a high-grade pharmaceutical-grade fish oil, or my preference would be either high-potent krill oil and or marine phytoplankton. And not just in little droppers, but in high dosages three or four times the recommended dosage of what you see on the bottle is going to be very, very helpful. One more thing I want to mention in this, and this applies to almost everything that we've already talked about, because we, in, we need to flush out the root cause, which is inflammatory agitation, which is high-grade turmeric products. There's an incredible product by a company called Synchrogenesis, which is a liposomal delivery of turmeric, which also has black pepper in it that activates the potency of some of the alkaloids like curcuminoids in turmeric that really allows somebody to get the full benefit. And this is the best turmeric product I've ever come across. It's the fastest acting um, it's, it's the most pro amazing product I personally ever come across, which is why I'm an advocate for it. And that's something I'd really recommend people look into. Um, and we'll add that into the show notes for everybody to, the link for everyone to look into. Synchrogenesis um, turmeric elixir is what it's called. You still there? Yes, I'm still here. So that was awesome information about neuropathy and a lot of information that I think many of us wouldn't expect about the connection of diabetes. And um, I think that pointing out magnesium and the different minerals um, is really crucial. What do you, um, do you have anything to add around tryptophan? I've heard something around tryptophan with neuropathy. That would make sense. Tryptophan is the amino acid that is the precursor for your, what's called your tryptamine chemistry, which essentially is like your serotonin metabolism. It's your melatonin and dimethyl tryptamine metabolism, which has a lot to do with stress regulation. It has a lot to do with relaxation and it has a lot to do with brain function in neurological chemistry, and which essentially is nervous system modulation or regulation. So tryptophan is extremely important that you bring that up. And you can get tryptophan by consuming high-quality, bioavailable, raw forms of plant-based protein, or simply getting it in free-form amino acids and yeah, that yeah, I think it would be definitely um, essential 
in any form of healing, but especially for like diabetic conditions or neuropathy, anything that deals with the nervous system, the digestive system, 80% of your serotonin is produced in the digestive system. So high quality probiotics and fermented foods have to be looked at in this strategy as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really important, I believe. That's awesome. I love how connected every question is. So neuropathy, neuropathy connects back to the circulation and every question kind of has similarities in, in the answers. I, I love that. So the last question for today is from Kimberly as well. And she wants to know about goji berries, soy, and wheatgrass. A doctor that she has come across claims that goji berries, soy, and wheatgrass are toxic. <laughs> and that cows have four stomachs and can digest grass. And that soy is toxic. And why are goji berries considered toxic? I know for me, I've heard... Um, certain people who may have a nightshade sensitivity may not want to eat goji berries. Um, and then I have heard things about soy, um, not so much wheatgrass. So I'd love to hear your take on these three specific food items. Okay, great. Um, this is a really interesting question. One that I really feel like we can explore is that these three foods in particular, um, you know, I have a long history with all three of these foods and studying each one of them. So when it comes to goji berries or wolf berries, as they're, they're often considered, or lyceum in the Chinese herbal system, goji berries are the number one food in the entire Chinese medicine wheel. I want to point that out. To say something like, across the board, goji berries is toxic is herbal lit illiteracy. It's herbal ignorance because... All throughout China, throughout 5,000 years of documented history, uh, goji berries have been the number one staple in their medicine wheel. And there's a great legend and lore and practical application throughout their history. So I just want to point that out and dispel kind of the fear uh, and the myth that's being created. Now, you are correct. There is a, there is a possibility that goji berries can present toxic, um, let's call it adversions in some people's metabolism based on their constitution or their condition. There's a few nuances, though, that have to be pointed out about this. One, yes, goji berries are part of the nightshade family, which is also contains um, tomatoes, it contains tobacco, many other commonly cultivated um, foods. This fits back into the hybridization conversation we had at the beginning of this call, where the weaker genetically a food is based on the excessive breeding of that food over generations and, and centuries, even decades, it, it displays weaker genetics. Therefore, its medicinal properties have been removed from it. And this is the case with goji berries, this is the case with tomatoes, this is the case with tobacco that most people are smoking. They're not smoking traditional aboriginal or, or you know, wild or heirloom varieties of tobacco, which is tobacco rustica, tobacco rustica. They're smoking nicotiana rustica. 
which is the you know what we would consider to be the more domesticated plant and the one that has the addictive qualities about it not to mention that the, there's like 4,000 identifiable chemicals that have been laced within the structure of that tobacco that wouldn't have anything to do with addictive uh, you know components as well but you know I digress so when it comes to goji berries particularly most of the goji berries on the market are sprayed they're inorganic they have red coloring to make them more red and more more attractive like the ones that you find in your your local asian market and the and that being excessively dry they have no water moisture left in them they're basically devitalized i don't recommend those goji berries and i think that they're too high in sugar typically and they're basically devitalized so they don't really have their therapeutic components to them now that's different than the goji berries that you would find from a company like Dragon Herbs, which has the best goji berries on the market that are still juicy, that still have water content, and you only eat a small handful a day. And the old saying is that a handful of goji berries a day will keep you smiling all day. And the reason for that is goji berries are the number one source of lithium in the world, and as far as food goes. And lithium is correlated with anti-depression. And the reason for that is it's a happy it's a happy mineral. Like lithium springs make you happy. So that's a happy mineral that kind of correlates with that idea around goji berries. Many other interesting components around that. Um, but as far as this question goes, the only reason I would say that goji berries could have an adverse effect is because people are consuming inferior quality goji berries that have pesticides and coloring agents associated with them. They're devitalized, they have sugar sensitivities, um, and they're just not consuming the right kind, or they do genuinely have a strong aversion to nightshades, which is more of a metabolic issue that needs to be worked out with that person, which I do believe is not an eternal diagnosis. That's like a food allergy that can be worked out by boosting the intelligence of the immune system. So in that case, I would defer that person to medicinal mushrooms. And I'm willing to bet at a certain point in time, they would have no problem with nightshades as they get their immune system back in check. Let's move on to soy. This is a big topic. There's a lot of controversy around it. I'll stick to the main point, which is Soy, especially 93% of the soy, according to the World Health Organization, is genetically modified. So if you are going to consume soy products like tempeh, for example, you need to make sure that it is organic, it's properly fermented, or miso, for example. Those can be great for some people, no problem. Um... But you just have to make sure that it agrees with you. Now, there is an issue with soy products being problematic for the thyroid, um, suppressing thyroid-stimulating hormone and being problematic digestively, agitating the digestive system. And it is one of the top five food allergies. So you have to factor that into play as well. That's why I would say that it makes sense that somebody would deem it toxic 
Um, and possibly because of the phytoestrogenic um, characteristics of soy as well. I'm not going to say all soy is toxic because I know people that are pretty remarkable physiological specimens that consume a lot of organic soy products. So it's kind of like it's a tightrope. It can be really, really good for some people and it can be really, really bad for some people. So that's that. And then on the wheatgrass, the reason somebody would say this to me is because if you look at the molecular structure of wheatgrass, it contains a compound called cyanide. Um, what is the... Uh, it's somewhere in my book. I'm not going to take the time to kind of source... To suss, to suss it out. But there is a cyanide molecule bound up in wheatgrass. And so the controversy, I guess, in this case would be that the toxic component would be cyanide. But what people don't realize is that when cyanide is bound up within the structure of something like wheatgrass, it gets di it, it doesn't um what's the word I wanna I wanna say? It's um it's diffused. It goes into it, it basically is is rendered inert and is has really no toxic adversion to the body. But when cyanide is introduced into the body not bound up to anything that would chelate it out, then it's a toxic component or toxic element. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, so that would be the only thing that I would say could be possibly toxic about wheatgrass. I know way too many people that have literally healed themselves from, doc from Ann Wigmore's famous wheatgrass juice therapy from Hippocrates and, and more natural hygienic and very minimalistic juice fasting protocols. So I can't really agree with that statement, although I can see where somebody could draw that perspective. Wonderful. Yeah. So it's really based on who you are and where you're at with your, with your health and also the source. So yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us here on the Ronnie Landis podcast. Um, there's been some amazing information this time. And Ronnie, I appreciate having this conversation with you and discussing heart health and circulation it's, and superfoods. It's always a really powerful conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure. It was super fun. I really hope that we help to empower and inspire people out there to take radical action on their health and life. And also, for everyone that's really, really loving this information, I would really recommend that you check out the Holistic Health Mastery program at holistichealthmastery.com. That is an incredible program that you can get tons and tons of value out of and really dive so much deeper than you ever knew was possible. So check that out. And other than that, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Christina. Thanks for facilitating such an awesome conversation. And everyone out there, I'm rooting for you and in support of your highest potential. Definitely. And we hope that this empowers you more to make more beautiful life decisions and create a wonderful life and wonderful day and
continue to submit your questions to Ronnie Landis on his Facebook or Instagram or however you want to get in contact with him, and we'll continue this series um, periodically for question and answers. Awesome. Take care, everybody.